Hey, hey, welcome in to another episode of Stummy Down. My name is JW, and as usual, I am joined by my best friend, Skinny, who in our last episode got to explore his luck for attending a really amazing Grateful Dead show on the luckiest of days, St. Patrick's Day in 1991. Skinny, say hello to the people, my friend. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm super, super excited. Not just super excited because it's springtime. Weather is beautiful down here in Maryland. Already popped a couple cold ones in case anybody was wondering. So yeah, we did have a great conversation last time about the Grateful Dead, those runs over the 90s. It was a lot of fun to talk about. I've been listening to those shows. I just talked to a friend of mine about the Black Peter from the show we just discussed. And he loves that Black Peter and that Peg Yo. What a great show. A couple bust outs. Real strong. I mean, have you listened to it anymore? Did you love it? I mean, just tell me. Absolutely. I was blown away by the stats of this show. And that's why I'm saying you're so... To be in the crowd when a band that's been around for, at that point, 26 years, plays a song that they've never played before... That's pretty fucking cool, man. And so the stats geek in me absolutely loved that. And obviously the new Speedway Boogie, which is one of my favorite Grateful Dead songs, to be there for that, which although they had played it the month previous in Oakland, that hadn't been played since 1970, you know? And those are ripping versions. I thought the band sounded great. Jerry sounded great. There were some great solos. His voice, his vocals were on point. I really enjoyed... Vince and Bruce on the keys. The drums in space was a little bit scary, which I like. I was stoked to talk about this show. I do think it was interesting the number of repeats that we saw from that show linking back to the July 6, 1990 show that you stubbed me down on in the first season of Stub Me Down. We had a conversation about those songs kind of being staples, where they were. I mean, the first set and the second set of each show started off identical. Yeah, it was crazy. You know, you play as many shows as the Grateful Dead does, and I'm sure nobody even realized it in the band that they had, oh, last year in Louisville, we we opened the first and second set with the same stuff. (laughs) Um, But no, I thought that that was a cool episode. And one of my favorite things is when you do stub me down on some of those shows, the Grateful Dead, we did Jerry Garcia Band in the first season as well. I like the stories and the thoughts you share about being there. It definitely makes me a little bit jealous, but it's also just so cool to hear those stories. Some of them I've heard before, but not all of them. I've definitely heard the cup story about Joe tossing you the cup over the security guard. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. If you have not listened to episode two of this second season of Stub Me Down, go go check that out. There's a great story that Skinny talks about kind of getting one over, literally, the security guards. <laughs> well, it's funny, too, because I had another stat that I didn't bust out from that show, and, and not even that show, that run of shows for a couple years. I believe from 90 to 93, they played the Cap Center right around that time. So Phil's birthday, St. Patty's Day. And I do feel lucky in that sense that the year before that, I totally forgot. Here's a stat for you. A Loose Lucy that hadn't been played since 1974. Not to bust out that stat and rub your nose in it. It was just so much fun to say, oh, my God, the year before I saw a Loose Lucy bust out. So 
epic shows that were played at the Cap Center, and I was in the middle of it at a young age, even at the end of kind of their career. I mean, it literally was the ass end of their career. And I'm seeing Loose Lucy, New Speedway Boogie, Ruben and Sharice. I, I talked about on the last episode, the Stir It Up Jam. But who didn't play the lyrics? I, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I saw that. So it's listed in Dead Bass as a Stir It Up Jam. So, I mean, that's, that's officially official, whether they sang it or not. Yeah, they did. Well, and the whole crowd was singing it for them. You know what I mean? So once they got to that verse, everybody was singing it anyway. But yes, awesome to talk about that show. Obviously, I love pulling those Grateful Dead nuggets for you because some of our current friends were around hanging with me at that time. And you always hear those stories. So it's, it's great to share. One other statistic that you dropped on me with this four-night run that they did in March of 91, and then... They did a three-night run the previous fall, the fall of 1990. So within one calendar year, they played the Cap Center seven times, which I thought was a pretty cool stat, especially for somebody you know living right around here. I mean, that's your backyard. Yeah, the Mid-Atlantic, man. I mean, you, you don't miss a lot of shows if you're into it. That's what happens out here on the East Coast. I feel bad for people in the Midwest. I, I just saw somebody tweet about that, like... I'm moving to the East Coast because I'm going to see some shows next year. And I'm like, hallelujah, man, you should, because you can see everything out here. And I hope they get a ticket. Today, Skinny, we are doing something really cool here on Stub Me Down. As we mentioned in our previous episode, we have a very special guest joining us today for the Stub Down. So we are going to bring in a new friend of ours. His name is Brian Weinstein, and he is the main guy, the creative force, the producer, the editor, and the star of his own podcast called Attendance Bias. If you have not checked out Attendance Bias, I highly recommend it. It is a very cool show. If you are a fish stats nerd, Brian is your guy. You'll learn a lot. You'll get to check out some great music, and you'll hear from some really amazing guests. Brian, welcome to Stub Me Down, man. Thank you so much, and thank you for that overwhelming introduction. I am all of those things. Um, <laughs> I, I would take away the star, but otherwise, yeah, it's a one-man show, except for the guests and the audience. They're the stars. So, Brian, give us a quick rundown on what attendance bias is, how it came to light, how you came up with the idea, and maybe highlight an episode or two, a show or two that you've talked about um, thus far that you you know are particularly proud of, or you know if you're going to direct somebody to go listen to this episode, what one would it be? It's a show where fish fans get to tell about an especially meaningful show. The basic setup is I have a guest come on. They pick one show from their history of seeing fish. The podcast goes into not only what this show is about for them. You know, it doesn't have to be a well-known, musically superior show, but everyone has a story about fish. Everyone has a story, even if the show was terrible. Like one guy who uh, did an episode about fish in Amsterdam in 96, where the band basically fell apart. You know, they, it's almost like they literally dropped their instruments and forgot how to play. But th that show was more about seeing fish in Europe for the first time that they ever played there in 1996 and what it was like to be in a club of like 300 or 400 other people while you are doing your backpacking, get on a train, and then who knows where we're going to be tomorrow on this continent 
it was more about that vibe and that feeling. So it's really about someone to come on and talk about fish as we all love doing. Dude, that's so awesome because I love your show and there's so many different things that I learned from listening to it. You can do a time travel. About six years ago, I began writing a blog called fish100.com. It's still up, but it probably will not be for much longer because I haven't contributed to it in a long time. But I realized, I think this was 2016, I realized that coming up was going to be my 100th show. And it was going to be on the same date and the same venue as my first show, December 29th at Madison Square Garden. And so I wrote about every single show I'd seen. It was basically a tour journal, but in the digital age, you know, I wrote about every single show that I'd seen. And then I ran out of things to write about because I hit the 100 mark. And then I started writing about every song that I've seen, I've seen, and then every venue that I've been to. And just this gigantic encyclopedia of fish and fish related accessories I had a lot to say about the band and my experience with it. About a year ago, literally a year ago, maybe today, quarantine hit. And I live in New York City. And here we took it very, very seriously, still do. But everyone was quite locked down. You know, the only safe place to go as far as residents of New York City were told was basically outside, but far away from others. So I started walking my dog. I walk my dog every day, but I started going on extremely long walks with my dog, but nowhere to go. So I just started listening to podcasts and a few months in fish tour was canceled. And it was just like, Oh my God, I have no one to talk to about fish. There's no outlet for this huge bundle of energy that I was looking forward to that last summer in Atlantic city. So I started listening and I realized everyone has a podcast. So I figure, well, how else am I going to find fans who I don't know to reach out to and talk about fish? So I did my research, I did my back channel planning, and by around August of last year, so that'd be August of 2020, I launched Attendance Bias. Yeah, I I love your show. Not only do I think about what we do, but I think about how you came up with the idea, obviously, which you just explained so eloquently, but you know, just this philosophical thing about the live music experience and how did you get into live music? What was your bread and butter before? What was the first show you ever saw? Like for me, the first thing I ever saw was Kiss and it was Kiss Alive 2 tour at the Cap Center with my mom, like in the nosebleeds because my brother was four years older than me and a Kiss fan. What was it for you that got you into live music? And I don't know, what motivates you to keep seeing it? The earliest, earliest memory I have was Ninja Turtles Live at Radio City Music Hall. (laughs) Nice. Where they might have even played a Kiss song called God Gave Rock and Roll to You, which I think was reused for Bill and Ted's uh, Bogus Journey. But that wasn't really a concert. You know, that was like a a performance for kids like me where there were people selling bootleg nunchucks outside of Radio City. (laughs) It's a true story. But the first real live experience that I remember, I was a day away from turning 11. I saw Billy Joel with my family on the River of Dreams tour at Madison Square Garden. Both of my cousins, their brothers, who were huge, huge Billy Joel fans, were and are, slept outside Madison Square Garden's box office to get tickets. And it was for my whole family. There were like eight of us. And I was just blown away. You know, for all the fish fans out there who are Billy Joel haters, I am the exception, born and raised on Long Island. And Billy Joel is my bread and butter, or was at least my first piece of bread with my first (laughs) spread of butter. Billy Joel, you know, he plays his long two-hour set with lots of River of Dreams songs. That was the tour. And then he comes back on, and his closer, of course, is Piano Man. Everyone's singing the chorus, right? And then the whole band just stops, and it's the whole crowd 
singing, you know, sing us a song. You're the piano man. And it was Madison Square Garden to boot. And we know how good it sounds in there and used to before the renovations, especially. At Madison Square Garden, if you're from Long Island, you're very old, you're very much keeping an eye on the train schedule. Because if you miss a train going home on the Long Island Railroad, it's like a 50 to 100 minute wait until the next one. It's a long standing on that platform. Penn Station is not a very delightful place. During that chorus, 10-year-old me is just mind blown, eyes wide, hands up, the whole deal. And I remember my mom or dad leaned over to me and said, listen, we could leave now and make the train, but if we stay, we're probably going to miss the train and we'll have to wait for a long time. And I'll never forget, I looked up and I said, you could go, but I'm staying. (laughs) Nice. And I think that was the moment that my soul was bought by live music forever. That means a lot to me because we talk about that. How did you start to feel connected? What keeps you connected? That's kind of why we started this is to keep ourselves connected too. We have so much in common. It's just great to hear those stories, man. Just welcome in. It's so good to talk to you. Yeah. For those of you that are new to Stub Me Down might be checking us out for the first time. The premise of the show is that over the years, Skinny and I have amassed countless ticket stubs to all sorts of concerts that we've been to over the years. Some of those shows we have been to together. Some of them we have not been with each other. We pull one of those ticket stubs at random and we use that concert as a jumping off point to a discussion about the music, our friendship, funny stories, the scene, and as Skinny alluded to there with Brian, what keeps us connected to the live experience? Why is it so important? And take a closer look at this music from a little bit of a different perspective. I just want to say that's one reason I love your show so much, because when I was going through ideas of what should my podcast be about, my first idea was to pretty much uh, vocalize or verbalize my blog. I'm too self-conscious to do it all by myself. And I thought about the logistical nightmare of trying to find someone who had been at every show that I've been to. It's just, it's impossible. That's what attracted me to your podcast is because it's so personal. I think Fish, by definition, is a personal, a subjective experience. Because it's no fun to hear just one person tell the same stories over and over again. But it's really fun when you have ideas and experiences to bounce off one another. And that's kind of why I decided to have guests pick the show. Because it's not coming for me. Now I'm the sounding board as opposed to the other way around. And that's what attracted me to your show. The premise sounds extremely similar. But really, once you get into the nitty gritty and listen to it, it's actually very divergent. It's very different. Yeah, we're different. (laughs) (laughs) We're definitely a little bit different. I think at the core of it, We have a similar philosophy in that, number one, we wanted to revisit some concerts either we've seen or that we didn't see, and we want to hear what somebody else experienced. There's also this void, right? There's this void that we all have right now. I haven't seen a fucking concert in a year and three months. It's hard. It is personal. And in the grand scheme of things, yes, it might seem small to your average person considering what others are dealing with during this time period and what we've dealt with individually, personally. Yeah. But for people like us, not having that live music outlet and the community that goes with it and the friendship and the spirituality, if you will, of what the music does for you and how it feels, not having that, it is a big void. I feel that same way. It's like, how do you fill those voids during a global pandemic? 
community feel is something I think that got so lost in all of this. It's great that Brian's show, Attendance Bias, and our show can make people feel connected. You can't stay connected physically, but maybe the voice is that physical presence that we can all stay connected to. And that's it's great. Skinny and I talk like three times a week anyway, so we figured we might as well. <laughs> we, we might as well put, put that time to some sort of productivity. Anyway, Brian is going to be stubbing Skinny and myself down today, which is really cool. We have really only had one other guest. Our friend Billy stubbed us down to March 1st, 2003, Greensboro Fish uh, in season one. Great show. So this is very cool. We are excited that we're going to get stubbed down here. Skinny, you got anything else before we, we get into today's show? No, I don't, man. Let's get into this thing. All right, Brian from Attendance Bias Podcast. Are you ready to stub me and Skinny down? Let's do it. All right, Brian, tell us what show you got for us. So I picked December 29th, 1998 at Madison Square Garden, uh, Fish, of course, and it was the second show of a four-night New Year's Eve run. It was my, personally, it was my third show of seeing the band, and it was a year and a day since my first. So that would make your, I'm not good at math, I'm a social studies teacher. Try it. So that would make your first show December December 30th, 1997? No. You were off by one day. You get partial credit for showing your work. <laughs> I get a redo, right? I get a redo. My, fir- my first show is uh, December 29th, 97, also at Madison Square Garden. So this was one year later. My second show was December 28th, 98. And then there's this show, which was my third, the 29th of 1998. So going into that first show in 97, did you know a lot about Fish? What were you going in with the mindset of to that first show, just so we can get a little perspective for fast forward to a year later and and this show we're going to talk about? If a battery being 100% charged is where I am now in 2021, I would say I was at about maybe 40% or 30% at my first show. I knew a couple songs off of Junta, And I knew almost all of a picture of Nectar. I was not yet an owner of a live one. And I had, I don't think I had any tapes. Uh, I was not yet into the idea of tape collecting. I didn't know it was allowed. You know, the only things I knew about it were I would walk around Greenwich Village occasionally with my cousin, one of them who slept outside for Billy Joel tickets. And there was this one old guy who looked like he'd been standing on the same corner for his entire life. And he used to sell bootleg tapes. They weren't a fish though. They were mostly of like... Jethro Tull or The Who or Led Zeppelin and Garden Variety Classic Rock. So the idea of Fish having live shows just kind of accessible by this new invention called the internet, that was completely over my head. So I walked in and I knew they played Golgi Apparatus, so I knew that song. They played Crossroads, so I knew that song. We're big fans of Golgi here on Stub Me Down. Oh, well, I would imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> and then they played You Enjoy Myself at the end of the second set. So I knew, I would say maybe one out of every four songs. But now when I look back at it, there are a lot of songs on both of those albums on Junta and A Picture of Nectar that aren't really played that often. So I think that my expectation, or at the time, so I think my expectations of here's what I know, I hope they play these songs were kind of overshot because they weren't going to play Megillah. 
They weren't going to play The Landlady by itself or Dinner in a Movie. Like those songs are not that common. They weren't and they still aren't. You know, I just had to make do. And then soon after that, I found a place where I could get tapes very easily and very frequently. And that's that's how I kind of built my knowledge of fish. It's interesting that you, you know, you mentioned Junta, Junta. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I heard all about it. Tom Marshall just had a big thing on Undermind, his podcast, about how to how to pronounce it. I'm stuck in. I'm like, I'm like an old racist grandmother who <laughs> thinks that I'm not personally, obviously, but, you know, who gets their mind stuck that this is the way things are and they'll never change despite new information. So to me, it's Junta. Till I die. Same with me. Um, no, but I was just going to say what you mentioned about you were familiar with these two albums. And whether it's Fish or whatever, when you go to that first concert, you're like, man, I hope they play. It's like the first time I ever saw Bruce Springsteen. I was like, man, I hope he plays Born in the USA. You know, like you want to hear what you know. Yeah. I walked into my first Fish show not knowing. I'd listened to Hoist maybe twice. By the time I went to my second show, I probably had 400 Fish shows on CD. Yeah. And knew the- Yeah, like a terabyte in your brain. Yeah. Right. Exactly. All right. So fast forward to 98. Where I was at this point was a huge difference compared to my first show. In the time between my first show and this, my third show and the night before, which was my second- I was just addicted to everything fish. I absorbed anything coming my way, plus the discovery and ease of use of the internet. You know, this is when like Prodigy went away and AOL went away, that these internet providers were no longer your primary access to the World Wide Web. It was like a huge playground. Anything discoverable, that's where you could find it. And that's where I discovered Andy Gadiel's page and fish.net and rec.music.fish and all of these resources that were previously unknown to me. So I learned everything I can. I found the Fish Compendium, the Farmer's Almanac, Volume 4. That is part of my DNA of fish knowledge. All of these things that I now knew going in. And the biggest thing was there was a head shop near my house in a town called Rockville Center on Long Island, and it was called Prime Cuts. And if there's anyone listening to this who's from Long Island or the Tri-City area or um, Tri-State area in New York, they almost certainly remember Prime Cuts. Because on the surface, it was any other head shop where you walk in, it smells like you know shitty patchouli. There's patchwork dresses uh, on hangers that seem to be there forever. No one ever buys them. There's a billion different pieces of incense. There's the wizard candles behind the, the counter, um, glass pipes with a big sign that says for tobacco use only. There was an iguana. Yes, an iguana somewhere hiding in the corner or on a guy's shoulder. Beaded curtains. Yeah, the beaded curtains with the the dancing bear in you know brown and yellow. It's like karmic connection in Fell's Point, Skinny. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I've never been there. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's every other. It's every other head shop that's ever been. With one very notable and very important distinction, if you go to the back of the store, it's not around anymore, but at the time, if you went to the back of the store, there was a table that had a bunch of binders, like eighth inch binders, like you would get for social studies. And next to these binders were ripped up index cards with like little library or golf pencils. And when you saw a set list that you were interested in or that you liked, you took a little piece of the ripped up index card, you wrote down the date, the band, and the, the set number one or two, and you brought it up front. And in the back rooms, they had all of these tapes 
all these different bands. And I remember they were color coded. So Fish was purple and pink. The Dead were, I think the Dead were blue. But Dave Matthews Band was green. Mo was yellow. And they would sell you a tape. And it was four bucks. It was $3 for the cost of the blank and $1 man hours. Technically, I think this was against Fish's their terms of use, but Prime Cuts got away with it uh, for a while. And then once, you know, the internet came along, like a billion other industries, it just blew them out of the water because everything was free and instantly available. Uh, What my friends and I would do is we would walk to the train station in a town called Merrick because it was only three stops away so that we didn't have to buy a ticket. We'd hide from the conductor in the bathroom or when we saw the conductor coming, we would walk through the train cars and then we would get off at Rockville Center. We'd walk to Prime Cuts. We'd get a slice of pizza at the place next door and we would buy as many tapes as we possibly could. And this is really where I built my collection. This is where I learned about Arrowhead Ranch in 91. I got tapes for uh, the Europe 97 tour. This is where I got tapes for every dead show. My first ones were uh, 7, 8, 78 at Red Rocks. So this was my flower and water of my understanding of jam band music. And the reason that I chose today's show, December 29th, 98, one day I went into Prime Cuts. It was after the New Year's run. And not only did they have this show, But, oh my God, they had it on CD. And not only did they have it on CD, but they also had a soundboard recording on CD. Mind blown. Mind blown. Yeah. Like, this is everything I've ever wanted, ever. So I've spent years and years and years listening to this show, and I know every single crevice of it. That's amazing, because the 1229 show seems to be this... Sunday show Madison Square Garden type of feel every year. We just saw, uh, were you there at 1229-2019 this past, the last time they played? I was there. I never missed a show on 1229 ever again. There, You just proved my entire point, which is <laughs> they, they have become these epic shows uh, in the past like three or four years at 1229. It's just a raging fire of a show. And... I'm glad that you chose this. So I I think it really sets the stage to get into it and start talking about it, which I'm excited about, man. Yeah, I think like 1229 and 1230 have become, you know, as a Jew, I could say like the high holy days of the fish calendar. (laughs) You know, it's there's something about those dates. And I don't know if I'm into numerology at all. I'd have to talk to uh, David Steinberg, Zizix you know, the stat man. But I think that there's something about December 29th and December 30th that just brings the best out of fish. And it doesn't have to be Madison Square Garden. You know, you could go to 1229.94. There's something about those last days of the year that bring out the best in the band. And also talking about the dead, as you guys did at the top of the show, you know, the first Dick's Picks I ever bought or heard was Dick's Picks 10, which was December 29th, 77 at Winterland. And to me, it's like, oh, this is how the world should sound. I totally understand where you're coming from. I'm a big fan of 1230 as a New Year's run date. As I've said many times, my favorite fish show is the one I'm at. So if it's the 28th, that's my favorite show. If it's the 31st, that's also my favorite show. So I'm a bit more cynical. (laughs) That's why Skinny's on the show. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not a numerologist. I don't know what's going on. I just I know that I've been to a bunch of good ones. <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking of good ones, let's go ahead and take a look at the first set. So Fish 1229.98 at Madison Square Garden in New York City. They open the show with rock and roll into Funky Bitch, Punch You in the Eye, Horn, Ginseng Sullivan, Split Open and Melt, 
Brian and Robert, Gaiuti, My Soul, and they closed the first set with a free bird that they did a cappella. I'm a big fan of this kind of one, two, three punch that they started the show off with, Brian. Rock and roll, funky bitch, punch you in the eye. That's a fun way to start a show, man. That's like 25 to 28 minutes where if you don't get your wheels on, you're going to be falling behind quick, right? Yeah, and the thing is, rock and roll, that opener, now we take it for granted that, oh, it's a first set opener, big deal. Uh, At the time, it only debuted two months prior at Halloween uh, in Vegas with Velvet Underground's Loaded. There were probably a huge amount of people at the Garden at that time who never heard them play rock and roll. So that was a very energetic opener. And the fact that the recording that I got, I mean, I know I was there as well, but a lot of my memory of the show is built from listening to it after the fact, actually. You know, the energy there and the excitement of the crowd just hearing them name drop New York while you're in New York during a holiday run, the excitement is very palpable. You could hear it immediately and feel it too. Those are get on your feet, dancing, the funky bitch, the sun seals cover, and then punch you in the eye. Yeah. Give me a punch. Somewhere in the first couple of songs of the first set, man, that is one to jam out to. Yeah, and it's flawless. Yeah. It's a flawless performance of the song. It's a bit long. I think it's about eight or nine minutes. Whereas Punch You in the Eye, if you just kind of cut it down to its basics, is really only a six-minute song. But they take those Latin music breaks, those Latin rock breaks, just a couple extra times around the block. And especially Fishman, because this is a soundborn recording, you could hear it. He is just, it's fast, and he is leading the way. He is the, the head of the train, really just pulling everyone else along with him. It's fabulous. Definitely a high-powered start to the show. And then they get to the fourth song of the set, which also has four letters. I wonder if that's a <laughs> I don't know. The fourth song of the set is Horn. And I know that this episode of Stub Me Down is all about Brian from attendance bias. <laughs> That's right. Don't forget it. <laughs> but I have to interject because in the second episode ever of Stub Me Down, What's Wrong with Character Zero, we explored one of my least favorite fish songs, which is Character Zero. During that episode, I alluded to the fact that there is a second fish song that I would rather do without. And that second fish song, Skinny, we avoided it until episode three of season two, but it has reared its head here. And that is Horn. Horn is terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You have some very specific hate for this song. I've heard it with you a bunch of times in shows that we've seen. The beginning intro part of it is not that bad. It's Awful, that opening guitar riff. I ju- I hear it and it's like oh, nails on the chalkboard, man. It's like slipping the knife across the ceramic plate. It just does not hit me in the right place. Don't even get me started on the lyrics. Like, the you got dumped, bro. Why are you out front of her house beeping the fucking horn, man? Go away. That's like some stalker shit. Well... I mean, you know, who knows how he was feeling. I've had some friends that had some strong feelings for girls. We had one in common that, like, knocked on our door at 3 o'clock in the morning. He he didn't even beep his car horn. So, I mean, I get it. There's a bunch of songs that I don't like. Not as strongly as you do, I don't think. I'm just glad the cat's out of the bag. I mean, what's your feeling on this one, Brian? You, You tell us about horn. 
I don't know. I feel like Horn is. <laughs> it's it's. Don't feel shy. No, it's. I don't feel too strongly one way or the other. Horn is like the Switzerland of the fish set list. It's like, what do you got against it? What do you got for it? It just is. One, two, three. It's the fourth song in. You probably have to take a piss now anyway. Even if I didn't, bro. Fear's on me. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a picture somewhere of me pouting during the horn. Oh, no, maybe that was a character zero. Anyway, moving back into the first set here. So after that horn, they let the air out of the balloon a little bit from their hot start. I will say about the horn that this was not a terrible version of this awful song so i will they're all the same (laughs) right well this is a version i was like all right well all right anyway it didn't even last five minutes so see (laughs) here's a guy who argues with himself (laughs) i do that after that they drop into ginseng sullivan shout out to billy duar big fan of ginseng sullivan i love a good bluegrass tune here and there but then brian comes really the centerpiece of the first set with that split open and melt man talk a little bit about that it was the first big jam of the show what did you think about that i love it more the more i listen to it and i am not a huge fan of split open and melt if you want to trade places for a minute i actually had this discussion recently with another podcast host who i had on attendance bias uh, justin bruce he's a really good uh, host his are called deeper listening and fish recaps agree with you 100%. He's got some great stuff. And we talked about Split Open and Melt. And the way he put it is that he doesn't like it when Split Open and Melt is played at the end of a set to kind of salvage a set. He thinks it's too much, like, and, it, and it's often done. Like that they say, we haven't really, to use his words, made a lot of hay, so let's put it all in Split Open and Melt. That was not the case here. And this Split Open and Melt, I think, was really good in that it not only wrapped up the amazing sheen of 1998. I think that 1998 was an incredible year for Fish. I do think it's underrated or at least underrepresented. It's certainly blotted out by 97, as most years are. But 98 was kind of, they still had that amazing superhero power to engage their funk as they did at any time. But they were also kind of slowly moving toward the drone ambience of 1999, especially late 1999. And I think this split open and melt kind of does both in the same place at the same time. And what I love about it is that it doesn't just automatically hit the jam. It rocks for a little while. And like almost every go round of that uh, strange time signature that the jam is in, every go round is just a little bit more abstract. Every time is just a little weirder. But by the end, you're just totally zonked out. And that's exactly where you want to be when you're about two thirds into a set. And I loved it at the time. At the time, I was a little less judgmental. I was just, whatever you do, you're the perfect band. You can't screw up. I was still in the honeymoon phase. But even upon re-listens as jaded and as cynical as I am now in my late 30s, I still think it holds up. I love it. I loved it. And I, I will continue to love it. It's interesting. Like you notice, like towards the end of the split open amount, I felt they were gonna kind of keep going a little bit there but then trey brings them back to the original yeah yeah and he was exploring it first and there was just this convergence of of jams that were going on which is typical of the song everybody's like yeah i know (laughs) i felt like they could have kept going and it could have went into a deeper place 
it wasn't necessarily aborted or cut short. Trey kind of wrapped it up and ended it. And Josh and I had talked about the, the crash symbols that Fishman uses as a signal. Uh, who was that that mentioned that, J-Dub? Yeah, that was on the Anatomy of a Jam about the Nassau tweezer, which actually, Attendance Bias has an episode about February 28th, 2003. So if you are not familiar with the Nassau tweezer, first of all, go listen to it, but then go listen to that episode of Attendance Bias. It's one of my favorites. It's with the head of a website called The Recount, which is a news website. His name is Slade Sommer, S-O-H-M-E-R. And he and I, he knew Prime Cuts. He and I grew up not far from one another. We're not the same age, but we are of the same demographic, I would say. And he really had a lot of good things to say. I'm very proud of that episode. Definitely listen to both the show and the episode if you haven't listened to either. And that's what happens. That crash symbol, if that's what's discussed, the crash symbol starts to signal and Trey brings it back to the split open and melt and ends the jam. But it is, it's a solid jam, it's its really good. That's the thing about 1998, whereas now in 3.0, I think the seams show a little bit more when a band member wants to cut a jam short or they want to change direction. I think as the audience, because Fish fans are such close listeners, we're able to kind of tell, like read their minds even a little bit more, it's a little more transparent. Back then in 98, they were so tight and telepathic. They know what they're saying to one another, whereas we in the audience, we're just loving what's coming from the stage. So they're speaking another language than, than we're understanding. And I think this split open and melt the jam that you just mentioned, Skinny, is really uh, emblematic of that. Yeah, I like the fact that they run the loop. I'm a big fan of the loop. Yeah. Everybody loves the loop. I'm a big fan of that, but... Everyone loves horn. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> but no, they, they run the loop here. I love that as an effect to these jams. I love when they just play around that loop. Page has some beautiful licks on the piano here, right around the five to six minute mark. And they just felt so relaxed inside of this jam. I heard the show prior to you selecting it for the stub down today, Brian, but I hadn't listened to it in a while. And going back, kind of relearning that split open and melt really makes this first set click for me. The Brian and Robert that comes in afterwards, that was a 1998 debut, so that was kind of cool to see. And then they played Gaiuti, which they've been playing for a while. Both songs had just come out on Story of the Ghost, though. So I'm sure that that was cool to see, especially for somebody at their third show. At this point, you're still seeing basically everything's new, at least as far as your stats. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, with the Story of the Ghost, of course, I absorbed it the day it came out you know i knew every song on it i it had just ingested it like an alien movie i just kind of let it become part of myself gaiute yeah they had been playing it since 94 i think like october 7th 94 was the debut i think but they had been tinkering with it for years and years and years and it was never totally solidified until the story of the ghost so now i knew kind of more of what to expect and so i can anticipate the big major key explosions i knew when to be quiet and when to cheer as loud as i could so that was very exciting i also think that brian and robert is one of their best studio recorded songs i think it's one of the few songs that does sound better on record than it does live I'll have to go back and, and listen to the studio version of that because, I mean, I guess I haven't listened to a lot of studio fish in a while, but I will. It's pristine. Story of the Ghost is a good album. It is a great album, but I'll have to go back and listen to that, Brian and Robert. Yeah, I was going to say on this one that 
There's a couple of sustained notes, which is Trey puts on that right in the beginning. There's a sustained note for maybe 15 to 20 seconds. And then he hits another one for like another 10 seconds. It's just a different way to listen to that, considering, you know, they just released that song too around the Beacon Jams with him and Paige at the barn. And it, it sounds completely different. So I, I would I would never until later on, obviously now in all these years of listening and going to shows, I would have never picked up that sustain. And I've heard a couple of Brian and Roberts. I didn't hear a sustain note like that. So it's just different. I, I always appreciate and love those different eras of fish. So and, and that's two years before I saw him. After that, they drop into my soul for about an eight-minute run through, and then they close out the set with a Freebird, which they did a cappella. It's funny on the version that I was listening to at the end of my soul. There's some dude that's screaming, and he sounds like he's saying Freebird, and I had to go back and listen to it a couple of times. It's I think he's actually saying Rebo, which they play a pretty sick one the next night. But I was listening and I was like, is that Freebird? And then they did the acapella Freebird, which they had played a couple of times in 98. I mean, that's one that you might not have again as a stat. And that's one that I don't have as a stat. I got to say the fish nerdery side of me is a little bit jealous of that one, Brian. Last two episodes of Stub Me Down, I'm a little bit jealous of the Stub Downers on some of these nuggets you guys are dropping. (laughs) Yeah, you've missed so much. I know, man. Anyone who listens to Attendance Bias knows, or anyone who just knows me as a fan, knows that I'm a huge sucker for antics. Even before we pressed record, Skinny and I were talking about big black furry creatures from Mars, which incidentally they also played the next night. And I don't think big black furry creatures from Mars is, you know, that interesting of a song, but the theatricality that goes along with it, with the strobe lights and the the smoke machine and Trey twirling the megaphone, I'm a sucker for all of that. So something like Freebird Acapella, which I knew they had played in the fall tour leading up to this show. I think they played it something like eight times that fall. I knew they had played it, but I wasn't that quick to catch the tapes. So I didn't know what it sounded like. I just saw it on paper. So when they actually played it, I didn't know that they vocalized the slide guitar solo. I didn't know that they actually did the whole song. It wasn't just the lyrics of Freebird. And I was just simultaneously delighted. I was cracking up and I was impressed all at the same time. That is one of those moments where you stand there, kind of watch and you kind of laugh and it's funny, it's cool. I think of when they do like- Well, it's like Space Oddity, right? When they did that at Wrigley Field. Absolutely. It was like time travel. I I don't remember what year it was. It might've been like 2014 that they did that or 2016, but it was like automatic time travel. The same feeling I got when I heard that for the first time was the same exact feeling I got however many years earlier this was, 18 years when they did Freebird. Or when they did Chocolate Rain for Baker's Dozen. Yeah. You know, which is like a weird YouTube song. So I love those oddities too. I am not a fan of the acapella. I mean, can we talk about who's not a fan of that? (laughs) I love the nuance of it. But then, like, especially when they lead off or end with it, I'm like, all right, let's go. Play something else. (laughs) So... I, I was never a big barbershop quartet guy. I, I, <laughs> I just, yeah. Well, to me, though, it's it's about more than that, though, because with fish, it's never the joke is never just a one and done joke on the surface because, yeah, it's it's funny. Number one, that they're covering Freebird, which is, you know, like 
like you said, JW, the, the, the one that the drunk guy at the bar always shouts out. So that's funny in itself that they're actually doing it. It's funny that they're doing it acapella because that's stupid and really funny that you would never expect. But the third layer is that they do the whole song, including that like four minute guitar solo. Not only is it funny, but it's cool and it sounds great. It's very well practiced and very well rehearsed. So even if you don't love, you know, as I become my Christian missionary here. So even if you don't love acapella barbershop quartet, it's like, how can you say no to all of that fun stuff? Well, I'm waiting for a beatbox. Like I'm waiting for I'm waiting for a heavy D or like Run DMC then. Was Run DMC? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on, Jay Z joined them in 2004. That's right. I was there in Brooklyn. Yeah. We touched on that a little bit in our first episode of this uh, second season. All right. Let me quickly review the first set. They opened the show with rock and roll into Funky Bitch, Punch You in the Eye, Horn. Ginseng Sullivan, Split Open and Melt, Brian and Robert, Gaiuti, My Soul, and they closed the first set with an acapella Freebird. So pretty good set. Obviously, as we said, that Split Open and Melt was kind of the highlight focal point there, but also some pretty cool stuff. The rock and roll kind of breaking out of the bounds of just being a Halloween play. We know that that's a staple these days. And then certainly the statistical point of the Freebird that Brian just talked about. Very cool stuff. Skinny, you want to get us into set two here, bro? Of course I do. And this is a five song second set, which we happen to love here on Stub Me Down. And I'm going to say it before I even read it. Shout out to five song second set on Twitter. Yeah, shout out to five song second set. Well, he's from around here. He's a Ravens fan. So of course I like him. Love that guy. And also a teacher. He's also a teacher. Ah, I like him even more. What is it with all you teachers? Summer's off for summer tour. If I can also mention one of the other very cool things about Brian, aside from the fact that we have similar podcasts, is he is also a teacher, just like Skinny and me. A lot of teachers. Don't go in education, people. If you're listening and you're still planning your future, don't go in education. Now, that's not true. Summer's, <laughs> summer's off. Yes, that's true. <laughs> All right, second set. All right, so we're going to start off with Free, which is always a good start. Limb by Limb, 2001, Boogie on Reggae Woman, and then You Enjoy Myself. Then the encore, Divided Sky. When they kick off with Free, I have a just a history of it. It's going to be a good set. Normally, these days in 3.0, they'll start a first set with it. But when it opens a second set, there's that part in the middle where Mike has his options for his bass fills. The and it just really takes off here. I think that Mike has a lot going on. He's in complete control of his pedals and his tone. And it just uh, leads the band into this kind of psychedelic, but still rock-based kind of freeform jam that doesn't last too long. I think the whole track is about nine minutes, but it's a great introduction to a five song second set. The breakdown when Mike gets his chance to shine on that song, obviously, and a place like the garden, it just fills up the entire room and everybody just goes ape. I mean, as far as a breakdown, that's probably one of my favorites because it's always funky and everybody around you just starts to crush it. And in 98, they were kind of moving away, and with notable exceptions, of course, but they were moving away from the dance party vibe. They really were, especially compared to the previous year. It wasn't about funk anymore. It wasn't about stop-start jamming. 
You know, it wasn't about trying to slow down and emulate the meters as it was in 97 to all of our benefits, but this was more about solid playing with an incredible group-wide tone, but also nailing all the changes and then stepping off the ledge a little bit and seeing what's out there without truly, you know, seeing around the corner with kind of playing without without limits and seeing what was there. And I think Free does that in kind of a microcosm, not in a major way, but it definitely dips its toe in the water. Yeah, I kind of look at Free as one of those quintessential fish tunes. You know, everybody gets to play a little bit of a role. Yeah. You've got, you know, some driving bass. You know, Trey can peek that out if he needs to or wants to. Fishman is steady Eddie there. I mean, Free is one of those tunes where if I was going to give somebody a CD and be like, give me some prototypical fish tunes that I would enjoy, Free would be on that list, absolutely. Yeah. That Free was my first lot t-shirt that I ever got was a Free t-shirt. It was cool. I had a fish jumping out of a fish bowl and said, I see the path ahead of me. And it's a great shirt. Somebody stole it. Skinny. Wasn't me. <laughs> I didn't steal it. <laughs> if I may, I'd like to put out a plea right now. Um, I have a lot... I had a lot shirt that was stolen in Philadelphia, of course, and I can't find any replacements. I search almost once a week for it. It was a lot shirt for it, for the It Festival. It was a gray shirt and it had green ovals, three across the chest that said, boy, man, God, and a silhouette of each band member. It was on the back instead of shit. And it was it and it was Mike. And I haven't been able to find a replacement. My car was broken into with the Man Music Center, and they stole not only my bag that had my shirt in it, but also my, like, epilepsy medication and, like, some really important stuff. The thing that I mourned the most that was irreplaceable was my It shirt. So anyone out there, if you have a lead on an It lot shirt, please get in touch with me. Yeah, Philly, gotta be careful. Man, they'll steal your grandmother up there, man. Philly's a tough town. Yeah, I know. Uh, if we have a chance to either recreate that shirt or if somebody out there finds that shirt or has it, please contact us or Brian because we would love that to happen. Please. The next is a limb by limb, which is my favorite song in the 3.0 era. But as I go back and listen to 1.0 and 2.0 versions of it, I fall more and more in love with this song. And this is an excellent version of it. It's hard for me to put my finger on what I love about this version so much. I just do. I love the lyrics. I love the back and forth between Trey and Paige. If you ever see Trey do like an acoustic and the crowd sings the other part, like I love that. There's not like one point where I'm like, yeah, limb by limb, but I never am annoyed. If that's in a set list that I'm at a show, I'm totally going to be digging it. It's always good. It's always consistent. I think limb by limb, for me anyway, in their catalog is the most consistent song that they play. And this version is, is super consistent. I think you guys are actually hitting on something here because it doesn't go on. It's like pretty condensed version. There's no thing that is ambient or jammy or gets weird. It's just consistency. And I, I think that they put their best foot forward on that. They just play it really, really well all the time. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And a limb by limb leading into a 2001 here, that's going to raise some eyebrows for sure. And this version of 2001 is a beast. The first five minutes, usually you listen to 2001 now, the intro is maybe 40 seconds, maybe a minute. This was like 
over five minutes. You didn't necessarily know what they were going to do. And then Gordon keys the drop and then Fishman picks it up at like five minutes and 30 seconds. And it's not what you would expect from maybe a more modern 2001. Of course, more modern 2001s are also not almost 18 minutes. Right. There's an intro to the intro in this one. It's not just the typical Fishman drumbeat with Paige doing, you know, the clavinet part over it. There's like, a, like you said, maybe a five minute kind of planetarium soundtrack to it before you even know it's 2001. It's unbelievable. I, you know, people have their favorite 2001s and there are certainly competitors. I think this is like a top 10 of all time. To me, without question, top five, depending on your attendance bias, you know, depending on your on your subjectivity. This is unbelievable. Again, that buildup. I don't know if you guys heard it, but like there's some like no quarter ish type of sounds in that first five minutes. They're really exploring. There's nothing really going on. I would imagine myself if this was my third show saying, what are they playing? I mean, I would totally be a noob, which we always have to justify. There is nothing wrong with being a complete noob. We were all there once. Yeah, we love noobs. Noobs don't know. Uh, listening back to this, I, I feel the same way. It's only because I have a trained ear now, like you mentioned earlier, that I'm picking up like some no quarter-ish type stuff from Paige in, in the middle of it. There's this entire buildup where it's space for me as an as a deadhead and then it's so subtle when fishman picks up the beat here yeah oh yeah it's a 2001 but they don't ever really play it <laughs> i mean yeah they don't they don't tip their hand these first five minutes everyone is a noob when they hear it for the first time because they give no hint as to what they're going to play it's you know it's like spinal tap you know it was a jazz odyssey except better of course but it's they're playing without limits for five minutes i wouldn't be surprised if they didn't know what they were going to play. You know, it just sounds like one band member just started goofing around. Another one joined in and, oh shit, we're on stage at Madison Square Garden. It's not that dissimilar from, like you said, uh, Skinny, like from Space. And it's also not that dissimilar from the Storage Jam from Super Bowl, for example. It's very abstract, it's very weird, and it doesn't really have a direction or a destination until Fishman joins in and starts playing that 2001 beat, just like the storage jam didn't have a destination until that fucking weird sleeping monkey at the very end. Oh man, we should have to talk about that one time, but we were right in front of that and we were almost left. I'm glad we didn't, because that was crazy. But some guy behind us, like, you guys gonna, are they gonna play anything? <laughs> a noob. <laughs> and I was like, no dude, this is what they do. That was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and they played and then they played Sleeping Monkey, which is just crazy. But yes, it does remind me of that. And to your point, that's so amazing that you brought that up again on Relisten. I'm like, that doesn't even sound like 2001. Nowadays, it's like, oh, wow. And they just jump right into it. <laughs> and then that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, I caught a little bit of I won't call it a full wedge tease, but there was definitely fish was fish was doing something on the Tom Toms that had a little bit of a, that wedge drum intro feel uh, in that first five minutes or so. I mean, throughout the rest of this version, there's a cross-eyed tease. I think you can hear a hint of a manteca in there. A 17-minute 2001 is 
without fail going to be pretty friggin' cool. And this version does not disappoint at all. I'm loath to use the phrase, you're doing it wrong, but if this 2001 doesn't do it for you, you know, kind of like a Jeff Foxworthy, you might be doing it wrong. It's fabulous. They only play the actual 2001 chorus twice in 17 minutes, which sounds boring on paper, but when you listen to it, it never falters. Well, and it goes to this concept of, I think a level of patience that the band had at this time period. I think definitely that was the case in 99, and really even to 2000, where the sound was different, as you said. It wasn't the dance party funk of 97. 98 was kind of a transition year into some of that ambient style that they got into in 99, and and a little bit more heavily in 2000. But this is patient. They kind of let the whole jam develop. That is something that I think really makes this version, and I feel like that patience was also prevalent in the split open and melt in the first set. So as these two kind of centerpieces of this show, there was that patient feel, waiting for things to develop. But there was a lot of room. There was It, it was like when Kramer blacked out one of the lines on the Arthur Burkhardt Expressway <laughs> and three lane becomes a two lane comfort cruise. How luxurious. And that's what, you know, there was elbow room there and it felt very airy and free, both the split open and melt and this 2001. After the summer of 2004, my friend Dan, who I attended this show with, I told him that, you know, I'd seen a bunch of fish shows that summer. You know, they were on their way out. It was the last summer tour, Coventry and all that. And they played a really excellent 2001 at Great Woods on August 11th. And I told him that because he had kind of not quite fallen off the wagon, but he wasn't as interested in fish anymore. His immediate response was, was it better than the one in 98? And I'll never forget. I said, I think so, I guess. And I'll never forget his response. He said, if they're not playing a better version of a song that they did six years ago, it's good that they stopped. And I don't know if I agree with that, but it was an interesting perspective for sure. When you start to compare the eras, if you're looking at it just from straight the music perspective, I think it's a little bit easier to compare the eras, but if you are taking the 10,000 foot view, it's a different conversation. Yeah, no, it was an ill, it was an ill-informed comment, but it, it kind of speaks to how this version of 2001 is kind of a tentpole of at least my fish experience, certainly his too. Sure, and we're not into rankings here on Stummy Down, but I would say that of the 2001s that I have heard, this one is up there for me. If I'm gonna like grab a go-to, this is probably gonna be at my fingertips for sure. After this 2001, they slip into Boogie on Reggae Woman. This is the only part of the set where they actually seg into another song, which is kind of interesting for a five song second set. Usually there's a little bit more than that. The Boogie on, real tight, not very long. Boogie on Reggae Woman always leaves me wanting more. Once you get into that groove, the crowd's dancing, everybody's singing along. Yeah, it's irresistible. And so that gets us to the end of the set. They close the set with uh, about a 24-minute You Enjoy Myself. You had seen You Enjoy Myself the year before. Yeah, my first show. So now this is your second You Enjoy Myself. How do you compare the two? They're very different. Uh, Note for note, I would take my first show's version, but there's nothing you know, nothing negative to say about this, You Enjoy Myself. It is just as flawless. I just like how in the one in 97, there was a longer bass and drums section, like it was pretty funky. 
Uh, this one, it was just a little bit more straightforward and I don't care for the vocal jam in any You Enjoy Myself, to be honest. And the only difference is this one was a little longer due to the vocal jam. So if the one in 97 was version number one, this one is version 1A. Yeah, I hate when they encore that because then I'm like, ah, oh, they're done. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't need it. I knew I liked you, man. I don't like that vocal. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, like, I guess we're going to stay for the encore, depending on what it is. What if it's Boogie on Radiant Woman? Uh, I would stay. I mean, you know, Josh always makes fun of me because my wife and I, we always leave it, like, especially if it's something we've heard, because we'd rather just get down the street and have a drink and kind of cool off after the show. You know, it all depends. I would be mad about the vocal jam. <laughs> For me, I've always linked this You Enjoy Myself with the encore of Divided Sky. To me, they're two sides of the same coin. They are either both the encore or they're both the end of the second set, depending on whatever way you want to have it. If you asked any fan on the street, if you said, name five songs that to you embody fish, every single one of them would say either or both You Enjoy Myself and Divided Sky. So to me, going back to that fan from 97 who knew Junta, very well those both of these songs are on it so these are both very meaningful and deep with me they're part of my original fish dna so the fact that they were both played in the same show back to back ended a set and then again for the encore it just it was all gravy that's like 43 minutes of music man i mean in two songs it's crazy yeah in two songs yeah yeah, we, we talked a little bit about how Divided Sky is like for the Catholics that are out there. Divided Sky is like the Our Father of <laughs> Fish, right? It's the, you know, one of their oldest songs and everybody knows about the rhombus and... Brian, you can stat check me on this one. I don't think Divided Sky has shown up as an encore a whole lot of times over the band's history. I will fact check you on this one, just not off the top of my head. I'll leave it up to the nerds and the nerditorium here. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to the people out there. I am scrolling the times played of Divided Sky, and it looks like only a couple of times. And actually, you already mentioned the Keysband Park 61704. They encored it there. 98 is the only other one that I'm seeing here. As you mentioned, I think Divided Sky and You Enjoy Myself. Are, you know, These are two other songs I would put on the Intro to Fish album with Free, for sure. They are root songs of the band. And I would also say that they're probably two of the most widely beloved Fish songs that are out there. I mean, there's not a, I don't think I've met anybody that's like, ah, yeah, meh, meh, you know? Yeah, it's a crawl before you can walk kind of part of the fish experience. It's if you walked into fish without knowing you enjoy myself, I would imagine that you would very soon, you know, if, if not for the music itself, everyone, at least when I started going, had those YEM, IBM shirts, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, what are they saying and you enjoy myself like this is kind of essential, basic stuff, you know, what's EM? If you don't know it, you will eventually just by osmosis, if nothing else. And there's a point in this divided sky that I can't tell you how many times I've rewound it and pressed play. It's when the jam is kind of dying down and they're going back to the coda where Fishman plays the rhythm of the, um, forgive me, but the dun, 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 and he just plays it on the snare drum. That is, this is the greatest band that's ever graced the stage. When he plays that, holy shit. It's just, these are the two flawless performances that puts the bow on a really good show. 
you have four guys in this band that can interpret the music using only their instrument. And we've talked about Fish, meaning Fishman. I, of course, have said he's underrated or he's rated or he's overrated. I don't know what he is. He's just... <laughs> I'm still trying. I think that's our next philosophical question is like, what do you think of Fish? He and, and the other members of, of the quartet have this ability to do things that are so slight that you don't pick it up until maybe third or fourth listen. And then you're like, oh, my God, you know, like I was present for that. That's to me the beauty of something like a divided sky a yam and any of these songs in the in the second set it's amazing at the time of this show i didn't recognize cross-eyed and painless so when they played those teases during 2001 i knew that i heard it but i didn't know what i was hearing and now when i go back it's just more meaningful knowing it in context that's an interesting point too brian because i think about all of the music that i've learned because of fish I knew a few Talking Head songs back in the day, but I had no idea about the Talking Heads until I heard Fish cover the Talking Heads. Same with shit. There's a ton of bands that I could go through and say, ah, I didn't know TV on the radio and some of these other bands that Fish has covered that you might not know in the moment, but then afterwards you're like, oh, let me check them out and learn. So that's a, that's an interesting point here too, that you might've recognized. Like, that sounds like they're going outside the bounds of what they've been playing, but I'm not sure what that is. That's a, that's a pretty good point. Brian, is there anything else that you wanted to say about this second set before I just revisit the set list here? Uh, just that I noticed something in preparation of our recording today. You know, it's kind of has that aura of have, being a five song second set, but the whole thing is about an hour and eight minutes. So it's not, you know, this crazy jam marathon, but everything is placed perfectly. And as, I know we've spent a lot of time about that 2001, but yeah, and it stands out. It's certainly the highlight of the set, but everything, to paraphrase Radiohead, everything is in its right place in that it's kind of a flawless set. It's to me a perfect set to put on the radio if you're on a long drive and you have an hour to kill, like right at the beginning. And it, it, there's nothing you want to interrupt during it. I love it. That's awesome, because it's definitely a diamond and it's not in the rough. Let me uh, rerun through the second set of 122998. Start off with a free, then a limb by limb, 2001, because I don't like to say the other name of it. <laughs> Boogie on Reggae Woman, You Enjoy Myself, and then Encore with A Divided Sky. Great show, man. That was a fun one to go back and listen to. One of the things we talk about all the time here on Stummy Down is this idea of re-listenability. You go to a concert, you're in the moment, you love it, you love the atmosphere and the presence of it. It stays with you. And then you go back and you listen to it. And, you know, we're talking about shows from over 20 years ago, right? The show was a long time ago. And so to remember some of the details about being physically there in the moment at the time, you know, those things get a little bit hazy, a little bit dusty as, as time grows longer. But the feeling that you get from the music, it's very memorable. You definitely characterized that, I think, in the way you talked about this show. And we are super thrilled that you were able to join us today and, and stub us down on this show. The whole 98 New Year's run is a very, very good one. I, I've never met a New Year's run that I didn't like. I have a 2014 in Miami run to introduce to you. <laughs> uh, we were there on all except for the second, right, Skinny? We were there. The uh, No, I guess they played. It was the 20. It was the 31st. New Year's Eve was the first. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we were there the first three nights of that. I think the only show we didn't go to was the third. There was some good stuff. The cities that Weekapog is one of the most epic Weekapogs they've ever played. Yeah. I mean, they played a sick Martian monster the first night. Dude, whatever, man. Not <laughs> what are we going to pull this one now, too? It's going to be like six hours. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll be another episode. Next up on attendance bias. <laughs> <laughs> In all seriousness, no, Brian, thank you so much for joining me and Skinny here on Stummy Down. Brian's show is attendance bias. Brian, you want to tell everybody where they can find this, maybe highlight an episode or two that you want uh, fans to check out. Sure. Thank you. Uh, the show is called Attendance Bias. It's available Pretty much anywhere you get podcasts, certainly Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, social media for Instagram. I'm at attendance bias underscore podcast and on Twitter at attendance bias. Some episodes that I'm at least the ones that have been published already. There's a few in the can that are waiting to be released. But my first episode with Sirius XM fish radio DJ, Elisa Alashant, I'm very proud of. She was wonderful. She talked about November 2nd, 2018 in Vegas, which was a show that has an excellent version of Mercury. If you're kind of so-so on that song, because you're a 3.0 jaded vet like me, uh, that one will probably change your mind. Uh, another one is with Fox 5 news anchor, lead anchor at 5 and 10, Steve Lacey, who is a huge fan. He picked July 12th, 99 at Great Woods which the band opened with uh, four play a long time and not the acoustic one from 94, like the full on electric version. Uh, that was a wonderful episode. After that, I think you should just go by whatever show you want to hear about and listen to. There was one that was released recently with a couple of my friends that we did a round table discussion of the Mexico 2020 festival that I'm very happy about. It's very close. It's very personal. And other than that, yeah, just go by the, go by the dates that you want to listen to. You also might want to check out Attendance Bias because your favorite Stubby Down hosts might be uh, visiting with you too. <laughs> well, yeah, I, it hasn't it hasn't aired yet. It's in the can. It's going to be aired. I just, if people heard this before it's there, I didn't want to confuse anybody. No, not at all. Well, Skinny, anything to Brian here before we um, wrap this thing up? No. I, all, I, well, God, why do I always preface everything with, no, I don't want to. <laughs> always. No, I don't want to say anything, but here I'm going to go. Brian, I, I am uh, really happy to have you on here. I, I love your show. I think it's just uh, an intelligent, engaging, and funny look at the shows that you revisit with your guests. I'm like super proud to have you on our show. You're just so engaging. I can't wait to actually see you in New York City at the Garden or wherever and we all meet up and just have a laugh about how we all got this stuff started. So I can't wait. Um, yeah, I can't wait to meet you in person and and much love to you. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys for, for hosting me. And, you know, I've always thought about what it's like to be on the guest side of this kind of thing. Like my all my guests, the hardest thing for them is picking a show. And so I I totally understand now why it's such a rigmarole to kind of focus in on one when you love every single one of them. So it was a real joy to be on here. Um, I love talking about it. I love being asked the questions. I love hearing your uh, your thoughts on a show you hadn't heard before. It's truly, truly a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Brian. I just want to mention a couple of people. The first one is Scott Mitchell, who has some great artwork at Fan Designs, which is P-H-A-N-D-E-S-I-G-N-Z. But his stuff is a really, really good. He has artwork 
that he creates not only uh, stickers, but also T-shirts and hoodies. Um, and it's not just for your favorite band there, Fish, Brian. It's for other stuff, too. <laughs> and then also the Lot by Primal Soup that brings us all together. It's a lot community that we like to shout out that's helped us out and then can help out others out there that are looking for anything from gear to connecting to other things that are on the Internet. You got to just check them out. I can't tell you all about them as I sit here because that would be another 45 minutes to an hour and nobody wants to hear me talk for that long so but i'm all good j-dub that's all i wanted to say today right on well we want to thank brian weinstein from attendance bias for joining us here on stummy down we get to take a look at a great show december 29th 1998 from madison square garden that 1998 new year's run a lot of fun there if you want to check us out on social media, we are on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us at stub underscore me underscore down. The address is the same for both accounts. Thanks so much for checking out Stummy Down today. And we will see you the next time you need to get out of your shitty seats and down to the path. Bye, everyone. Bye.